Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. I go way back with my guest today, Lucy Rutia. She's a close friend and co-conspirator on the quest to create an inclusive financial system. Lucy's passion is rooted in her own experience of moving to the United States from Venezuela as a credit invisible. And she has spent her career supporting underserved communities by advocating for their voice in the financial system. Right now, in the midst of the pandemic, Lucy's focus as the CEO of the Axion Opportunity Fund is on small businesses that have largely been crippled by the crisis. She is an innovative and fierce leader that I'm always grateful to have on my side. Luce, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Hi, Jen. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. I see both of us are sitting in our home offices today, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. Luce is the CEO of Opportunity Fund, now Oxion Opportunity Fund. Um, and you know, you've really been at the forefront of efforts to help small businesses both before the pandemic, but particularly since. These businesses have really taken the brunt of the pandemic, um, particularly the services industry. And I've seen estimates that, you know, it could be that a third of small businesses don't end up reopening. And particularly now that we're in this like one step forward, two steps back, tremendous amount of uncertainty, which I think must make it very difficult for small businesses. So how are small businesses in this country faring? Are they in the clear? Are they doing better? Uh, tell us, get, paint us a little bit of a picture. Sure. Well, first of all, delighted to be here. Thank you again for this opportunity. Always a pleasure to spend some time with you. So, Jen, I would say that, you know, first, it's important to recognize that not all businesses are created or impacted equally. So, yes, many small businesses were decimated but others report that they've had some of the best months during the pandemic. And it really all depends on what industry they operate and frankly, in what state they operate. In general, uh, you know, we see cases were falling, right? States lifted all their restrictions and then the Delta variant hit. And some restrictions have been restated. Consumer confidence has definitely slowed down. We hear it from our small business owners. You know, many small businesses are still struggling and we're not going to know the final count of how many shut and how many of those came back open until much later, I think. But businesses are saying that it's going to take them a while to recover. Uh, There's been a number of studies that have been done. The Harvard University data shows that 36 percent of California small businesses that closed during the crisis have not yet reopened and the 11th highest number in the nation. Right. But of course, we're Mm. we're a big state. And overall, the, you know, the pandemic resulted in the permanent closure of roughly 200,000 small businesses above historical levels. Mm. But we also know that after major economic downturn, small businesses lead the way. They did it after the Great Recession, and I know that they're going to do it again. But it's going to take really an intentional effort by many constituents and partnerships working together to get them the resources that they're going to need so they can adapt, they can rebuild. And again, because not all businesses are created equal, they all need different types of support or different types of intervention. You know, some businesses are frankly not in a position to borrow money, right? 
because debt is not a replacement for revenue. Uh, these businesses need grants, need equity. Other need access to capital, and they're very much in a position to do it. And all of them need access to, you know, technical assistance, business advising, and other support networks uh, to continue moving forward. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of work. I can see why you're so busy. Um, and I want to go a little bit deeper into uh, those various supports that are needed. But before we do that, on this idea that small businesses aren't created equal, uh, that they're all different, they're also different based on who owns them. And minority-owned businesses, uh, from all accounts, have taken an even larger hit. Um, I think uh, 10% more likely to have reported that they've closed their businesses for good uh, compared to white business owners, and the list goes on. What insights do you have into um, how minority business owners are faring? Uh, and are there unique challenges that they face as we're thinking about uh, supports and solutions? Unfortunately, the answer to all of the above is yes, yes, and yes. You know, it's widely known, right, that businesses owned by people of color, immigrants, and women were the most impacted. There's been a number of surveys. In April, the National Advocacy Organization Small Business Majority found that 36% of small businesses said that their conditions were somewhat improving for their businesses compared to a, a month ago. And 5% only said they're greatly improving. However, this same survey found that Black-owned small businesses continue to experience disproportionate setbacks. 35% of Black entrepreneurs report that their business conditions are worsening, and 37 say they may not survive the next three months. The same thing with a small business majority survey uh, with our partner, Small Think Big, Big uh, found that over half of small businesses with less than 100,000 in revenues were able to receive funding of any kind compared to 90% of larger businesses. And then when you compare white-owned businesses, 61% of small businesses owned by white owners were more likely to obtain financing compared to 50% of Black and 50% of Latinx businesses. So if the question is, why did Black, Indigenous, and people of color owned businesses have a harder time receiving funding and are having a harder time recovering? The answer is real simple. They've been shut out of the traditional financial system and as a result, they're struggling more than their white counterparts. We heard this in the Paycheck Protection Program and we can talk about that and what happened there, but I think everybody by now has heard sort of the discrepancies and how the capital was allocated. But it's really, you know, being shut out of the system, it's really hard, particularly in times of crisis. But this is a long-lasting uh, challenge that, that I think we all know has existed. So in that context, let's talk a little bit about Axion Opportunity Fund. In fact, you actually did a merger with Axion USA March 11th, 2020, right on the eve of um, the lockdown. Talk about the organization and the role you play in supporting small businesses and how that has evolved or changed um, as a result of the pandemic. Sure. So uh, you are absolutely right. Um, <laughs> I think it was, you know, Gina Harmon, who you obviously know well, and I tell our story, and we both feel like Indiana Jones in the famous scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> when he barely slid under the gate. Uh, that's how Gina and I felt about this combination, to be honest. We combined Opportunity Fund and the Acción U.S. Network 
a few weeks before we all had to go shelter in place in mid-March of 2020. And, you know, mergers are generally difficult between nonprofits. They rarely happen. 95% of them fail, right? Um, but, you know, back in 2018, when I came to Opportunity Fund, succeeded Eric Weaver as the former founder and CEO, Acción had gone through their, air, their strategic plan, and they determined that they could deploy a billion dollars in capital in the next five years. Around the same time, I joined Opportunity Fund, and we had done that strategic plan that we could deploy a billion dollars in the next five years. Gina and Eric had been talking about potential combination for years, and I think that with the change of administration, me coming in new, Gina and I got together, and we believed it would probably be the good time to restart conversations. And so this was like, you know, we looked at this from a business perspective, right? Why do we duplicate the exact same goals of deploying a billion dollars to underfunded small businesses across the country? Why do we raise the capital and invest in this infrastructure separately when we can do it because we have a shared vision, a shared mission and shared values? We could do it together and have more impact, right? And have every dollar that we raise be more better leveraged. And so... We were going to scale lending to businesses owned by people of color and women. Um, we really believe there needs to be an organizational structure that's integrated, whether you know leadership, technology platform, credit, risk, data, partnerships. And so together, that's what we're doing. We're working to become a national lender that's developing products, that is going to be transforming the model CDFIs have had in the US. You know, it's really hard. You and I have talked about this multiple times to scale a lending business with boots on the ground by itself as your sole customer acquisition platform. And so we believe that there is an opportunity to do it more effectively, more efficiently and do it at scale. And so we're leveraging a lot of technology. You know, we opened up a call center that's now seven days a week, 15 hours a day. We're using a lot more data analytics. We're expanding partnerships because we believe that the size of the problem of capital in this country is so significant that it cannot be solved by one or two or 10 CDFIs, right? It's got to be a compilation of partnerships across private and public sector to help us get the access to capital and get the resources that small businesses need, while at the same time making sure that you're meeting the customer where they are. Not all customers are ready to get digital. Not all customers are ready to go A to Z without having that face-to-face -face or, or, or digital these days, Zoom to Zoom interaction. So you have to build customer service models, particularly for these communities of color, women and immigrants uh, that meets them where they are in their journey and carries them and gives them access to use the resources down the road. Okay, there's a lot there. We could, we could have this conversation all day, but I wanna take a step back, go back, and tell our listeners, in case they're not familiar, a little bit more about the offerings. I, I could simply describe Oxion Opportunity Fund as, as a, a micro business lender or small business lender, but I don't think that would do it justice. Sure. So describe a little bit more about your offerings and who your target customers are. Um, and also give people a sense of your sort of scale and reach. Absolutely. So Acción Opportunity Fund today, uh, we are one of the leading nonprofit CDFIs, community development financial institutions in the country, providing responsible capital, 
business advising, coaching, technical assistance, and other wraparound services uh, for businesses. Nearly 90% of the businesses that we work with are owned by people of color, women, and immigrants. Um, In terms of our scale, we have a $200 million balance sheet. Uh, We have about 6,500 customers in our portfolio. Uh, The typical profile of our customers are businesses, definitely, I'd say 90 plus percent under 10 employees. Uh, The vast majority really are under three employees. So we're working with the smallest of the smallest businesses that really have no access to other type of financing and have a very difficult time accessing the resources that they need in order to be able to grow and have their businesses thrive. And so what, what kind of loan sizes are typical for you? So we go anywhere from $5,000 to $200,000. And I know that's a wide uh, range, but we work with different types of customers. You know, one is the equipment financing. So we are the largest uh, lender to mobile food trucks in California, as an example, which is an incredibly uh, self-sufficient and mission-driven business. We also finance sole owner operators of long-haul trucks. Uh, The transportation industry, as you can imagine, over the last 18 months has been booming because it has been so necessary to move goods back and forth, you know, between states and within within states. Let's talk a little bit more about the policy front. There's been a lot of action there on on a number of different fronts, actually, Uh, whether it's low cost capital or grants, uh, whether it's uh, pushing uh, banks to do better uh, in their own lending records um, and on and on. What are you seeing out of Washington or frankly at the state level that you're excited about? And where do you think we need more or different? Sure. So I think we all know, look, the Biden administration, they're great supporters of CDFIs. You know, the CDFI fund earlier this year launched the Rapid Response Fund to provide a billion, $250 million worth of grants uh, to about 860 plus CDFIs. Great funding. This is capital that CDFIs can use to support, you know, economic distress in communities. Also, the America Rescue Plan Act uh, was signed that provided $10 billion in the state small business credit initiative. Uh, Wonderful program to help business lenders with loan loss reserves, with guarantees in, in, in different states, right? I think we all saw that when CDFIs are given the resources, they can stretch significantly to meet the enormous demand for capital and technical assistance in in the markets. And, you know, CDFIs, for better or for worse, are truly helping these small businesses that have been left behind uh, by the traditional financial system, whether it's in dollars deployed, numbers of businesses that we help, the the target populations that we reach. Um, and, and these are really the, the tiny, tiny small businesses. I will say one thing, Jen, you know, regardless of party lines, all of us really need to rethink how we want to rebuild our economy and supporting small businesses with resources is, is, is critical, whether it's capital, support networks, business advising, um, equity, you know, that's going to be a huge part of this recovery. I will say that, you know, the small business lending landscape uh, from a regulatory perspective is lacking some things. So, for example, if you take a look, if you go and get a mortgage today or you buy a car, you're going to get what's called the truth and lending disclosure. And that is going to tell you what is your rate, 
what is your term, how long the loan is going to take to pay off, how much you're going to pay. None of those protections exist in small businesses, right? And so we think that's a huge problem, right? Businesses ought to be able to make decisions for themselves and understand what type of credit they're taking. So having a federal, and it's being introduced, a federal truth and lending act is going to be crucial. And I would beg, you know, participants to support this because every small business owner has the right to know what kind of credit they're taking. The other piece is um, Section 1071, as, as you know, uh, which was part of Dodd-Frank over 10 years ago, uh, mandate to collect data on small businesses owned by minorities and women. We need to understand who are the actors in the space that are lending to small businesses, what products are they and at what rates, right? And that to date hasn't happened. We're now in the, the you know, reviewing uh, the final rule, providing feedback, but golly, we need to get that implemented and we need to get it implemented soon. Um, this small business credit initiative that um, I just talked about is extremely powerful because that gives states critical funding so that small businesses can get access because lenders now feel more comfortable in opening their credit box and being able to lend to businesses that may perceive to have higher risk, but in reality, they don't. So a lot of things going on, a lot of things in the horizon, and we're very excited about them. I want to talk about a different aspect of everyone coming together. Like you said, we need everybody involved here. Um, and that's the private sector. Um, you have struck some interesting partnerships in your time at AOF. And the one that I've always been most taken by is the one with Lending Club. Uh, Lending Club is um, a very large uh, online lender. And I believe that your partnership with them is really to help from a scale perspective, bring more potential customers to your front door. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how that partnership works um, and uh, what it takes for uh, an organization like yours to be able to engage in a partnership of equals, if you will, with a large publicly traded company that now actually uh, also owns its own bank. So, yes, yeah, so the Lending Club partnership, um, you know, has been incredibly impactful for uh, our organization. I think it has been mutually beneficial, which is what every partnership should be. Uh, today, we are getting referrals um, from Lending Club. Uh, basically, all small businesses, it's a co-marketing uh, partnership. So mm. all small businesses that come through the Lending Club portal are redirected to Acción Opportunity Fund. And we take those who are fitting within our target market and within our credit box, and we underwrite them and we provide capital. And then those that are outside of our target market, we are referring out to other partners who are then you know, doing their underwriting and, and providing loans or you know, uh, brokering them through, through other uh, sources of, of capital. Luce, you have had a fascinating career journey. Um, 18 years of what was then Wachovia Bank before becoming one of the earliest innovators in fintech, frankly, before it was even called that back in the early 2000s, which is, which is when we met each other. Um, what drove you to make the shift from banking 
to a startup founder um, and now uh, to running a nonprofit lending organization. What, what's the through line? Help us understand um, understand you. Sure. So you've heard the story many, many times, Jen, but you know, when I moved to the U.S. Uh, from Venezuela to, to finish my undergraduate, I worked at a bank. At the time, it was Wachovia Bank. And I applied for a $500 credit card uh, from that same very bank that I worked for. And I was turned down because as an immigrant, right out of college, I had no credit history. So they were able and willing to give me a job, but not trust me with a $500 credit card. And I learned a hard lesson that most banks do not give credit to people with no credit. And 30 plus years later, not much of that has changed. But I worked at the bank for 18 wonderful years. But that day I made a promise to myself that I one day would lead an organization and would work in bringing responsible and affordable financial services to people who don't have access, folks like me at the time. And that's really how I have spent the past 35 years of my career. You know, I founded El Banco, which was that community bank in Georgia that you were so instrumental in mentoring and helping me get, you know, grow. Uh, then leading the expansion of, you know, a growing for-profit CDFI headquartered in the Bay Area. And then in 2017, you know, I realized that I needed to work in an organization where I could start with the mission and allow the mission to drive the financial sustainability of the organization. And that's how I found my way to Acción Opportunity Fund, which gives me the opportunity to do exactly that. Uh, you know, we often talk about mission and margin and balancing those two things. And you have attempted to do that from, I think, almost every possible vantage point. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately, about how particularly when an organization is attempting to scale, it can really put pressure on that idea of uh, doing both mission and margin. What have you learned about that over the length of your career? Is it really possible to do both and continue to scale and grow one's impact? The answer is what have I learned? It is probably the hardest, most difficult job and thing to do that I've ever done. And it's also the most rewarding. You know that because again, you've been on this journey with me as a mentor, as a confident, as a supporter. Oh, we're like we're like a mutual fan club. I we're right yeah, back at you. Yes, yeah, we are, we are. Um, but I would say that, you know, I see firsthand, and I have seen this, whether it's in the for-profit or now in the nonprofit world, that when we focus on building a more inclusive financial system, right? One that helps to bring everyone along and, and provides people the opportunity to chart their own path. We as an organization, right, can affect profound economic and social changes. And by helping others, our organizations, again, for-profit and nonprofit, we become stronger and we are in a much better position to scale and help more people for generations to come. And so I don't think that those mission and margin always are equally weighted at every meeting and at every decision, but all in all, when you look at the overall portfolio 
and the overall things that the organization is doing, there has to be a balance because I always say, if there's no margin, you really cannot execute the mission at scale. But if you don't have a mission, your business survivability over time and your success is going to decline. Luce, you have increasingly been recognized as an incredible, innovative leader. You were just named Forbes 50 over 50. You're increasingly heralded and seen as the leader that you are. You're also increasingly recognized as a critical leader in the uh, Latinx community. This is Hispanic Heritage Month. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that. You know, you told our, your story of coming to this country and the fact that you were not from this country made it difficult for you to get credit and that sort of launched the rest of your life's mission and purpose. Uh, uh, how do you bring your uh, sense of identity uh, to the work that you do? Wow, that, that's a very important and powerful question uh, and an emotional one, frankly. You know, um, it's interesting because when I look uh, at my career, I can pinpoint every single thing I've done to the efforts of others around me, right? Nothing that I have accomplished from learning English to starting to work at a bank to getting a graduate degree, it has always been sort of, you know, fueled by mentors and sponsors and friends who believed in, in, in I could do it, right? And, you know, my parents, my mother in particular, she always said to me, if you don't do it and fail, you will never learn. So you've got to move forward. And wherever you go, do not let gender, race, age get in the way. Always look to leave every situation better than when you got to it. And so to me, you know, I don't, I don't look at what I've done as something extraordinary. I do look at the people that have surrounded me as being extraordinary and having believed in me and having given me the opportunity to believe in myself that this all can get done, right? Um, if, if you put your heart and your mind and your purpose to it, you can do it. And so it's, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a community effort. My life has been about community. It has not been about any individual accomplishments that I've made on my own. I think that is a great place to end our conversation. Luce Arutia, thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you so much, Jen. Always a pleasure to be with you. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.